She was renamed to the parable of the, of the generous father, um, which is what I'm going to be referring it, uh, to it as for the rest of today. So when I say the parable of the generous father and you're like, what the heck is he talking about? I'm talking about this, the, the text we're reading today. Because I think too often we turn uh, this text into, um, into a moral story as opposed to what? Am I supposed to do something? Oh, John reads the scripture? Rock and roll. Yeah, come on up. Alone. Come up. Come up. Come up. Come up. Come. No, no. Come up. I'll let me introduce it, and then you come up and read it. Um, I, I think too often we focus on this like it's a moral story, when in reality it's a story of God's generosity. Um, and so, yeah, come on up and read. All your son. His Bidding to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Guys, I'm just going to say that was a way better reading than I would have done. 
Like I was saying, the parable of the prodigal son is an all-too-familiar tale, right? We know this uh, really well. Um, So much so that I think a lot of us have kind of softened the edges off of it. Um, But it really is one of the most radical stories of God's grace in the Bible. Um, uh, Just just life-altering, mind-changing and yet in our familiarity with it, we've become comfortable with the story, right? You got a son who takes everything, bails out, goes and does something wrong. Uh, don't be like that guy. Um, we've got an elder son who sticks around and works really hard, but is kind of mean. Um, so be like that guy, except for when he's mean, um, And, you know, everything kind of just turns out in the end. We've turned this story into one of Aesop's fables, um, a moral story, when it really is not that at all. Um, When we do that, we strip the gospel power out of it. About two years ago, I bought a book, um, and the cover stopped me in my tracks. Uh, It was a picture of Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal. Um, Since all of you have your cell phones out, I wouldn't mind if you opened your cell phone and just Googled it. uh, Rembrandt, Return of the Prodigal. Um, If we had a screen, I'm not normally a screen sort of guy, but I would have put it up on the screen for you to look at. Um, It's this beautiful painting. Uh, I've often wanted to hang it in my office um, because it shows the father's love for his rebellious son. Um, it's this great picture, a son broken, kneeling at the feet of his father, being embraced by his father, a second son standing off to the side, looking in judgment, people standing around. You see, what so impressed me about the story of the prodigal is just the generosity of the father, um, The generosity of the father that's displayed is shocking. It's meant to shock us. It's meant to stop us in our tracks. It's meant to be completely countercultural. You see, whether it's in uh, the Israelite culture or in our culture, it's meant to, to make us stop and do something. We have to wrestle with something here. Who would do this sort of thing? What kind of good father would be this nice? Well, God the Father. What type of father would, without reservation, love his children in this sort of dangerous way? Well, God the Father would. (laughs) In this reality, though, you see, in this story... We come face to face with the reality that because of the work of Jesus, we now have this sort of father. (laughs) We now have this sort of love placed on us. So today we're just going to dive into this, into this parable, the parable of the generous father. We're going to take a look at it in three ways. We're going to look at three men, one party, and then we're going to look at how we become like the Father. Um, Here we go. 
three men. Luke 15, uh, 1 through 2, starts us out with some context. So if you do have a Bible and you want to flip back uh, half a page, it says this. uh, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus, knowing that, begins to tell three successive parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then here, the parable of the generous father. All three parables of grace are centered around the heart of God. Um, Whether it's the heart of God for a lost sheep, or the heart of God for a lost coin which is valuable to him, or the parable of the generous father about two lost sons, you and me. In this parable, we're given descriptions of three men, two of whom are searching for approval and one who's living in the approval that he already has, living with confidence. All three tell us something about who we are and who we want to be. So first, the younger brother. The younger brother is your typical younger brother, right? Seeking security, seeking fulfillment, seeking happiness. And he's come to the conclusion that living under his father's uh, roof, living by his father's rules, just isn't going to cut it anymore. So he's got to strike out on his own. He asks for his inheritance before his father is dead. And there's a lot of work that's been done on this, so I'm not going to bore you with it. But in essence, the son already had that money. It was his. It was his inheritance. He just couldn't spend it yet until his father was dead. So he goes to his father and he says, give me my money. Give me my money. I wish you were dead. So I could have my money. Give me my money. He gets his inheritance. And he journeys to a far country. You see, he wants to put physical and spiritual distance between him and his father's house. And this is no small thing. Um, There's no indication that his home was a bad home. There's no indication that his father was an abusive father, was a bad father. Um, In fact, every indication shows that his father's home was actually a pretty great place to live. His father was generous. He took care of his servants. His father was kind. His father was wise. But he goes off into a far country to chase after the things that he thinks will bring him joy and peace and happiness. You see, the younger brother, having all that he needs at home, leaves, takes his inheritance, and spends it on debauchery. Now, wine, women, kids, this means he just blows the money for you, it'd be like, he, you take your dad's credit card and you go and you just buy all the ice cream in the store and all the cookies and you just sit in the store by yourself eating it, thinking that's going to make you happy. 
He chases after those things that he thinks will bring him joy, self-worth, satisfaction. Tries to gain deliverance from his father. You see, and in that, we all find a little piece of ourselves, right? Um, We all have the far country that we run into. Henry Nowen says this, When I forget the voice of the first unconditional love, the love of the Father, then these innocent suggestions can easily start dominating my life and pull me into the distant country. Anger, resentment, jealousy, desire for revenge, lust, greed, antagonisms, rivalries are obvious signs that I've left home. Without realizing it, I find myself brooding about someone else's success my own loneliness, and the way the world abuses me. Despite my conscience intentions, I often catch myself daydreaming about becoming rich, powerful, and very famous. I find myself in a distant country. So friend, what's your far country? When you feel alone, when you feel sad about your life, When you feel like your father doesn't love you. What distant country do you go into? Have you returned home? Second person we're introduced to is the elder brother who we're going to look at. Is the elder brother. This is the character that we know the least about. Um, He kind of appears, has one line, and then walks off the stage. All we hear is his frustration and disgust over the kindness and forgiveness of his father. He too has grown up in a loving household, secure, provided for, loved. And yet, he thought he was earning that the entire time. In a sense, justifying himself by his rule-keeping you see, as opposed to his brother who went for wine and women, the other, the older brother, um, goes to obedience in order as a way to make himself right with his father. It's in this place that we see a part of ourselves, right? Jesus tells the story of the parable, or the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. God, I thank you I'm not like that guy. Who is that person for you? Could it be someone who believes something different than you? Could it be someone from a different political camp than you? God, I thank you I'm not like that person. Could it be someone who's homeless? Could it be someone who has a different sexual orientation than you? God, I thank you I'm not like that person. I tie the tenth of everything that I own. You see, the elder brother looks at his younger brother and then looks at his father and says, God, I'm not like that guy. Don't you see? Don't you recognize? 
When our enemies have it easy, when our lives are filled with suffering, we blame our obedience. When our lives are filled with pleasure and success, we look at our own orderliness to think that it brought that about. And that becomes the catalyst to make us into the elder brother. So, what are the things that you rely on to validate yourself? What are the ways that you look at yourself in the mirror and say, God, I thank you, I'm not. Fill in the blank. Have you come into the party yet? There's a third person. A person who's settled in who he is. A person who's not concerned with how he looks to his peers. He's consumed with love for his children. And yet he doesn't look to his children's obedience or lack of obedience to give him identity. He loves them. He's filled with wisdom. Wisdom to such an extent that he gives the younger brother everything he asks for, knowing that when he's sitting in the shopping mart eating the ice cream, eventually it's going to turn bitter to him. He's so full of this sort of gospel magic that when his son comes home, he throws a party. A party. Who throws a party? He knows his elder uh, son would struggle with his conception of what makes a man or a person worthy. So his father tells him, all that I've ever had was yours. (laughs) I've always loved you. Come in. Come in. Come into the party. Second point. One party. Uh, I've, uh, back when I was a pastor full time, I had a, I had a good uh, friend, a dear sister in Christ, who some of us know um, here in this room. Probably one of the most intelligent women uh, that I've ever met in my life. Um, she and I were, were uh, friends. Um, she and I... Uh, yeah, we would, we would get into it over scripture. She's a beautiful, beautiful human being. Uh, she was in her PhD program at UCSD, uh, when, uh, when she came to Christ and I can remember, uh, this, she came to Christ and we threw a, a, a salvation party. It was kind of like a birthday party, but because somebody got saved, um, there was cake, uh, there was a lot of rejoicing, um, there was fun, there was merrymaking, Uh, We had a lot of fun. Party. Our sister, who was dead, is now alive. You see, this is the closest thing that I've ever seen to the party we read of here. The celebration. The younger son squanders all his inheritance. He comes to the end of himself. He's run his course. He's burnt out. He's strung out. And he's left to defend and fend for himself against a a, a bunch of pigs. I mean, kids, think about that. You've gotten to the point in your life where you're trying to eat what pigs eat. You're sitting in the pen with them. Where they go to the bathroom, where they wallow in the mud. You're sitting there. It's all over you and you're just trying to eat something, anything. He has reached the bottom of the barrel, 
And he's found that the things he thought would bring him joy and pleasure actually ended up destroying him. So he comes to his senses and he goes home. Hey, even, even, my, even the servants, the most lowly people at my dad's house have enough, more than enough bread to eat to keep their bellies full. He goes home. He remembers his father's kindness and security as he heads home. He starts to practice his confession, his mea culpa. Have you ever done that? You've done something wrong to someone else, and then you're walking over and you start saying the words in your mind. You're like, does this sound like good enough? (laughs) Have I actually covered everything? Father. I've sinned against heaven. Oh, yeah, that's good, heaven. And against you. Yeah, I want to make sure I, 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 I tell my dad. Let me become like a servant, dad. That shows like the proper amount of contriteness, right? Like the proper amount. Let me, let me become like a servant for you. One of the lowliest people in your household. Let me do that. Treat me like that. And you see, he's got the nature of forgiveness all wrong. Uh, He thinks he needs to work to earn it. His father blows his mind. Throws a party. He comes home. And notice what the father is doing. First, he's watching. Think about that for a moment. Kids, you all have, or maybe you don't have. My kids have cell phones. I'm not going to assume every kid has a cell phone. Uh, my kids have cell phones. I don't have to watch. I can just open the Find My iPhone app, and I know. My kid goes, they come home, I can see where they're at on a map at any point in time. Funny thing is, this father didn't have GPS. He didn't know. That meant he was watching. Waiting, knowing, understanding, wise. No text messages, just waiting patiently. Then he runs towards his son. I mean, this was out of control. You got to think about this. This isn't like me running in regular pants. Uh, Southern California guys wear short shorts. We kind of see people's legs. And this time, nobody saw a guy's legs. Except for when he's running. And grown men don't run. He hikes it up. Hikes up his cloak. Shows his legs. And breaks out in a dead sprint when he sees his son. Abandoning all decorum. Abandoning his his own uh, standing with his peers. He runs towards his son. And when his son arrives, his son is gross. It's not like they had mobile showers. Um, His son is gross. Remember where he just came from. A pig slop. And he's been walking. They didn't have deodorant. He's been walking in the heat, hours, days. He stinks. 
And what does the father do? He kisses him. He kisses him. I have a friend who once, uh, he and I, I'm a hugger. COVID's been uh, really bad for me in my hugging. Um, uh, I have a friend of mine who, uh, who uh, he had just had his son. Um, and I went to visit he and his wife in the hospital. And he came in and he hugged me. And I had just oiled my beard. Um, so it smelled wonderful. It smelled kind of like minty with a little bit of coconut in it. And he nuzzled his face right into my neck. And he said, Joel, you smell good. <laughs> you see, it's easy just to get in and give a hug to someone who smells good. It's hard when the muck that covers the person who you're hugging is not just the pig slop, but it's the betrayal. It's the usury. He kisses his son. The son starts to spit out his confession. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad's like, ah. Starts calling over his servants. Bring me the robe. Bring me the ring. Has no time. No time for make me like one of your servants. Stops him. Kids... Oftentimes, the Bible uses these sorts of pictures to teach us something about what's going on inside of us. So I want you to listen to this really carefully, okay? Because this is super important for you to get. All right, here we go. Notice what the father replaces. The father gives him the best robe in the house. Now, what's going on on the outside is a picture of what's happening on the inside. I don't know, kids, if you've ever played in something where you've gotten all muddy, right? Um, what does your mom do when you come into the house? Stop, stop. Don't get things dirty. It certainly happened with my son. Don't, don't drag in the mud. <laughs> the father, lovingly, knowing what's all over his son, takes off his best jacket and gives it to him. You see, that's what Jesus does, kids, to us. When we come to him, we come all covered in our pig slop. And Jesus covers us with the best, with his own love, his own righteousness. But he doesn't leave him there. He gives him his ring. Now, this may not sound like a big deal, right? But back in those days, the ring was like, was like the, the bank card. <laughs> it was like power of attorney. Kids, it was like your parents giving you, after you've gone and bought all the ice cream in the store, told them I wish you were dead and bought all the ice cream in the store. It's like them saying, oh, yeah, here, here's my wallet. And I'll buy anything else you want in the world. You just sign for it. You have all my money. You see, this is what Jesus does for you, kids. When you place your faith in him, then what you get 
after taking advantage of him, what you get is access to all of God's inheritance. All all that's Jesus is yours. You become what's called a co-heir, meaning you both have the same access to all the riches that God has. He gives that to you. He cares for him physically, puts shoes on his feet, gives him something solid to stand on. You see, this isn't far enough, though. He kills the fatted calf. Now, kids, this doesn't make any sense to you, but think of it like this, right? Let's say today's Father's Day, okay? Your dad might like steak. Let's say he has the best steak in the house. The one that's covered in fat that just tastes so good. Fat actually tastes good, kids. You'll get it in a second. Don't worry about it. He cooks it up and he gives the steak that was meant for him to you. He gives you the absolute best food to eat. Now, there's a lot of people who think this fatted calf references Christ. I'm not one of those people. But what I do think this does is it pushes our minds forward to that great day when we will hear the angel saying, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see this feast, it's fatted calf, the best food, the best robe, the best access to the inheritance, all of that are all set against the reality that the night before, this young man was eating pig food. His brother, then angry, full of pride, shows up. Parties going on. People are having great food. They're drinking great drink. And the brother shows up and he's angry and full of pride and self-righteous indignation. And he comes in and he says, what's going on here? This parable is meant to confront the scribes and the Pharisees, you and I, those little Pharisees inside of us, says, what's going on here? The crazy thing about this story is we don't know how it ends. We don't know if the elder brother actually becomes happy and walks in. We certainly don't know if the younger brother sticks with it, walks the line or if he grabs the signet ring and goes back into the far country. But we do know something about the nature of the father who will wait again and again and again. So how do we become like the father? What does this mean to us today? What does it mean when the reality of this thought, our sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, our sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. When that thought grabs our hearts, what happens? Well, 
we become like the generous father. (laughs) We start to, in little incremental ways, turn towards those around us and live in generosity towards them. We love them. We care for them. We become what we always long to be. A person who shows safety, who, who expresses forgiveness and love, who lives in what Henry Nowen calls the internal embrace of the Father. Close with this story. Now, this is by Reverend James Monroe. I found this story in a book written by a friend of mine, Scott Keith goes like this, and I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to warn you if I cry, uh, it always gets me. Here we go. Let me breathe first. One of my very best friends is my sister, but when I was in the fourth grade, she was in the second grade, and I would say that sacrificial, self-giving love was not at the core of our relationship. (laughs) One afternoon after school, she and I were having a fight on the second floor landing of our house. I punched her in the stomach. She opened her mouth to cry. In that moment, without thinking, I grabbed a spray can sitting on a table. This is a long time ago. I'll explain the references. As my sister got ready to cry, I stuck the can to her face and sprayed DDT in her mouth. Um, DDT, kids, is poisoned. Um, so if you don't know, it was poison that was used to kill bugs and rats and things. He sprayed it right in his sister's mouth. Um, This was before everybody had cars, so hang on, here we go. Um, uh, At this moment, my mother appeared in the room, like moms do. (laughs) She saw what had happened, grabbed my sister, ran downstairs and out into the street. Flagged down the first car, got in and ran off to the hospital. I went into my room, sat on my bed and waited, waited for the end. (laughs) which was not far away. Half an hour later, the front door opened and I heard steps on the stairs. Steps that I knew belonged to my father. I knew that the apocalyptic second coming and final judgment was about to happen and that I fully deserved it. My father walked into my bedroom and stood at the door. He saw the guilt and the despair and the sorrow, the shame on my face. Then he did something that's permanently affected me. He opened his arms. I burst into tears and ran towards him like a shot. And he folded his arms around me. I can still feel those arms at this moment. And I know whose arms they really are. They're arms with nail-scarred hands. May God make us into a people who live in the eternal embrace of the generous Father and then turn and give that embrace to those around us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray.